Today our text is Acts chapter 11, and if you have your Bible with you, turn with me there to verse 19, and I rather uncreatively titled this message, What Happened at Antioch, which means I couldn't come up with any other title. But I'm going to do more than tell you about what happened. This is more than just about history today. I want you to be amazed at what God has done. I want you to be amazed at how God still does what God does. And I want you to be confident in your obedience to Him because of what God does. So I hope that today you learn something from the history of God's story, the story of redemption, but I hope also it'll stir you to something that you'll do with this text as a result moving forward. Verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, the reason I said what happened in Antioch as the theme is because this is such a pivotal moment for the gospel, such a pivotal moment for the church. I want you to see how the gospel now is penetrating the Gentile world and maybe get a sense and scope of this. You can look at a map of the, of the world of biblical times, and you can see where the gospel begins and the church erupts in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Whoops, I think we got a map. There we go. Well, you can't really see over here on this section, but down here to the bottom right, Jerusalem. At Jerusalem, the church blows up, Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit falls on the church, great power is given, and many thousands come to Christ. And it can't be contained there. God said that it wouldn't, that the gospel was going to go to the edges of the earth. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And so it begins to spread, and the next stop that we see is a place called Caesarea. Caesarea is the Roman capital of Judea. Caesarea, a major port city where God miraculously changes the heart of an apostle named Peter, and he demolishes his prejudices and biases and preconceived ideas about what God is about and how God is going to work. Simultaneously, God is working in the heart of someone who sensitively, passionately seems to be pursuing God, wants to know God, but's not there yet, and he's a Roman centurion. And to this person's home, Cornelius, a centurion of centurions, a member of the Italian guard. You know, as the Roman Empire had blown up all over the, the region, all over the known world at the time, there was still a core of leaders that were truly Roman, the Italian guard. They weren't just, they weren't just officers who were co-opted into service from all the regions they had conquered. No, they were core to the core, 
people of great leadership. And so God takes the gospel and plants it into this family. His family becomes believers. And now just imagine what God is about. A major port city with constant commerce to the rest of the world. But it doesn't stop there. The church is being persecuted. And as it's being dispersed out, moving out of Jerusalem, not because they were so obedient, but because God was pushing them out, they end up in a place called Antioch. And at the time of this writing, Antioch is the third most significant city in the known world, behind only Rome and Alexandria and Egypt, a major port center, a major metropolitan center. And look what God is about. And so we see the Gospels penetrating the Gentile world, whether it's through Peter's obedience or whether it's through God-ordained persecution, which results in diaspora or a great dispersion of God's people, the result is this. Acts 11, verse 18. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. I guess what I want you to see at this stage of this message is this. I want you to see the sovereignty of God in all of this. I mean, we can praise Peter, and he is heroic in his obedience. And we can look to Cornelius as a, as a launching point, the tip of the spear for the gospel in the Gentile world. Or some of these others who are nameless. But the hero of the story is God. God who is getting his own story out. God who is evangelizing. God who is gospeling. God who is taking his work to the ends of the earth. And we see this spread from Jerusalem to Antioch. We see the transition from they went to everyone except Gentiles to now also the Gentiles, from except to also. And don't miss this little point. The spread of the gospel now, taking root, is no longer just done by apostles, but by anonymous Christians, anonymous followers of Christ, the nameless ones, those who were scattered because of the persecution. It's not simply on the backs of Philip or Stephen, or Peter, or Saul. It's now the work of every Christian everywhere. This is what God is doing. You will be my witnesses. But what is the critical component in all of it? What's the critical component, the one non-negotiable, the one absolute essential? The mighty hand of God. It's the sovereign hand of God in all of this. And God's hand was with them. God's hand was with them. God was doing this. God was going before them. God was changing hearts. God was empowering the message. God was preparing circumstances. God was working in details. God was working both visibly and invisibly, whether it's through persecution, which, by the way, maybe put an asterisk there. This is an aside. This is a freebie. There's sort of a modern tendency, I think, in most sort of pseudo-Christian teaching that would suggest that any sort of difficulty or hardship, anything that's painful, costly, is somehow outside of the will of God. God's story and the redemption of people is far bigger than your personal or my personal comfort or, or pleasure. And to simply dismiss every difficulty or hardship or great cost as being somehow contrary to what God is doing in the world would cause us to miss what God's doing in the world. Often what we see God about is through difficulty and hardship and pain, breaking through, penetrating, taking the gospel into hard places. And make no mistake about it, those people today that are in the hardest places on this planet, 
to make Jesus known, do it at great cost to themselves. But they continue to do it. Why? Because they see the hand of God. They, like Barnabas, look around them, and they see in the conversion story of maybe one or maybe a family or maybe a breakthrough here or a breakthrough there, they see, as Barnabas saw, the grace of God. They see God at work in all of this. Persecution, God's sovereignty in preaching. It's not simply the, the high performance value of these men. It's not their skills with words or compelling stories or you know, dramatic exchanges. It's the hand of God in every word that they speak. God who's sovereign in their believing, because we saw in verse 18 of chapter 11 that God has granted to them faith. It's God opening up their eyes to see and their minds to understand and their hearts to believe so that they come to faith in him. And literally, if you take those two verses that serve sort of as bookends in this text, where it says at the beginning that they, a great number who believe turned to the Lord, you see that in, in uh, where were we there, verse 21, and then you see, and the Lord added to them. Literally, in the Greek, it's the Lord added to the Lord. It's God doing his, his work. He's not doing it without the obedience of people, He's not doing it without the response of obedient faith by people. But the Lord is adding to the Lord. Now, this is true work. This is true gospel work. And here, here's another just simple aside for a moment. We're talking about the church blossoming, the church growing so rapidly, so obviously that no one can deny what God is doing here. But there's a critical statement there made. They were being added to the Lord. There's a huge difference in simply adding people to church and God adding people to himself those are different things and sometimes we've conflated the two sometimes in our strategies our pragmatism our sort of secular methodologies we thought whatever we could do that would get people to show up to come in maybe even to be part of it whether they're really believers or not whether they're really convinced of it all or not whether they're committed to it at all or not if we could just add them to the church one of the worst things that we've ever done is adding people to the church who weren't added to the Lord. To inoculate people against true saving faith, to convince people they're fine with God when they're not, the Lord adds to the Lord. And understand in all this, God's sovereign hand, far from discouraging the mission, it's God's sovereignty that enabled the mission, empowered the mission, motivated the mission. You see, sometimes I think we have this misunderstanding. We, we do this equation in our mind, and we think, well, okay, if you're saying God is sovereign over the mission, and God is going to penetrate these places, and God is going to draw people, God is going to grant salvation to those whom he will, then what point is our effort? To what end is our obedience? But the early church rightly saw this in the exact opposite way. Because God is at work, because we can see God's hand, because we see God penetrating darkness and lostness, because we see what God is doing, we have hope, we have confidence, we persevere, we're obedient. As one great reformer writes, the Christ gathers his church by supernatural power, but the gospel does not fall from the clouds like rain, but it is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. And this has always been the plan. Christ teaches us that God uses our work and he summons us to be his instruments in whatever field he sends us. God's sovereignty encourages us to pray faithfully, diligently, daily. It, it encourages us to patiently persevere even if we don't see success 
and he encourages us to hope in the ultimate victory of Christ. Last week, as Charles was sharing you a message, which is a little hard to do when someone's giving you their notes without anything but a skeleton, say, hey, put some meat on these bones. And there was one particular statement that is, was in those notes I really wanted to emphasize because it really struck me when we were on our trip in the Holy Land. Um, it's easy sometimes to look at the world around us and be discouraged. I know that's a very broad and rather s- simplistic statement. But just the lostness, you know, the darkness, in fact, the increasing animosity even towards the things of God. I mean, this is the reality of the world that we're in. And when you're in a different place, particularly in a place where you have cultures in collision with one another and you have religions in great opposition to one another, in a place like the Holy Land, the Middle East, Israel, Egypt, etc., it is very easy from a human perspective to feel very hopeless about all of this. And we see the great animosity between Jew and Muslim. You see the Christian component in the Middle East being squeezed out in just about every place. You go to a place like Egypt that's about 90% Muslim. 8% or so claim uh, some version of Orthodox Christianity, but what exactly that means to them sometimes is hard to discern. And you can feel rather hopeless. But we're sitting there in Caesarea, this coastal city, And the day that Zach was preaching here, we were teaching, sitting on those steps in the amphitheater in Caesarea, reading from the book of Acts. And it dawned on me in that moment that what God had done through Peter's unlikely choice to be the first missionary to the Gentiles, what God was doing simultaneously, unbeknownst to Peter, in the heart of a pagan named Cornelius, and how God was introducing the gospel to the Roman Empire What dawned on me that moment was hope, hopefulness. You see, if you and I are totally self-reliant, how well can we package this stuff? How convincing can we be? How can we overcome every objection? How can we school ourselves sufficiently in apologetics so we can answer every opposition, so that we can understand every different religious claim? How are we possibly going to do this? We can't. But God can and God does. And the faithfulness of his people who will simply be obedient to tell the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done gives us hope. I want you to see the hand of God in this. The gospel didn't make it to Antioch because they were so clever, because they were so skillful. They were persecuted, and they were in pain and hardship and difficulty. And as Dan read through your text, they were struggling financially. God's sovereign hand was through all of this. So what then is our part? Our part is boldness. Our part is hopefulness and patience. As we obey boldly and hopefully and patiently, we know God is going to do this. And listen, this is not just a story of how the gospel got out in the first century. This is a story of how the gospel is going to get to your wayward son or daughter, to your disinterested neighbor or friend, to your spouse who couldn't care less about what you're doing or hearing about today. How's the gospel going to get to them? You be confident of this. Isaiah 55, 11. God says, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. How God will work and when God will work and what God's word will do in someone's heart, we know not. For some, it hardens them more. For some, it penetrates and grows we don't know the outcome but we should know this 
Our work in the Lord is never in vain. It's never in vain. There's not a single prayer that you'll ever pray for someone who's not a believer that's in vain. There's not a single Bible study that you'll ever have. There's not a single scripture that you'll ever share. There's not a single gospel conversation that you'll ever engage in that's in vain. And you and I need to be confident of that. We need to be hopeful in that. We need to be patient in God's work in that. We need to be faithful in obedience to our part in that. But we need to be hopeful. We need to be confident. So, when the church begins to sprout there in an unlikely place called Antioch, once again, the home base of the church, ground zero for the church, Jerusalem, where the apostles are, in the hope of unity, doctrinal integrity, authenticity, calls for Barnabas. To send Barnabas, go see what's happening there. Go see if this is legit. Go see if this is real. Go see if these people are really part of us. Remember, that was the challenge to the early apostles. Jesus himself said to them, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And so whatever you lock is going to be locked, and whatever you unlock is going to be unlocked. And that key to the kingdom that he gave them was that testimony of faith. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. On that testimony of faith, Jesus promised to build his church, a prevailing church, that hell itself and its gates could not withstand. So he sends the keepers of the kingdom, as it were, go verify, go validate, go see what's happening in Antioch. And the Bible says when Barnabas gets there, he recognizes the grace of God. How? How do you recognize the grace of God? What would the grace of God look like if you saw it? How, how would you know it's happening? Now, I'm, I'm offering you something that is obviously somewhat speculative because the Scripture doesn't say. It just simply says, he saw the grace of God. We think of the grace of God, I think, sometimes more as idea or concept, or at least it's sort of ethereal or nebulous. What does it look like? How would you measure it, define it, mark it? What about the obvious work of God in the lives of people whose lives would not otherwise be changed were it not for God? People who would never would have believed were it not for the work of God. People whose lives would have not been changed were it not for the hand of God. People whose marriages would not be saved or whose families would not be redeemed or whose entire course and direction wouldn't be altered were it not for the hand of God. I think Barnabas got there and he saw no one but God could do what we're seeing here. This isn't man-made. This isn't manipula uh, manipulated. This isn't artificial or superficial. This is God. He saw the grace of God. And when he did, the Bible says Barnabas exhorted them. What is that? He exhorted them. Now, in modern vernacular, common usage, exhortation might look like something like a strong challenge, a forceful push. But in strictly biblical terms, it's very personal. The idea is that Barnabas came along beside them, knowing them because he was close to them. He drew close to them. And so when you see this exhortation, this isn't distant or disconnected. This isn't impersonal, okay? This is very up close, very passionate, identified with the people that he had drawn near to, and he comes alongside them and tells them to do these two things, two great challenges. Now hear this, because this is the heart, I think. Of Acts 11. Here's what you got to do, folks. Persevere. Persevere. Don't let go of this. Don't let go of this great faith. You have begun 
Now continue. Now finish. Persevere. He challenges them to perseverance and to wholeheartedness. Perseverance and wholeheartedness. That's the heart of what he's saying here. Perseverance with your whole heart. The call to follow Christ is a call to surrender yourself. It is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer rather famously said, it is a call to come and die. Whether that means actually I might lose my life in certain circumstances or cultures to follow Christ, perhaps, because of course Bonhoeffer did. Firing squad by the Nazis. Or whether it simply means to abandon the pursuit of a inconsequential life. A life apart from God's plan and will for you. And to take on Christ. To do what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. It's the self-denial of the new life. Listen, come with your whole heart. And I think the two are probably necessarily wed together. The person who doesn't follow with their whole heart is unlikely to persevere. The divided heart, the heart that tries to straddle two worlds, two kingdoms, two lives, two choices, two purposes, two characters, doesn't work. And he challenges them. Think about that for a moment. The great challenge to new believers, persevere. Persevere because it's worth it. Though it may be very costly, there's nothing that you will suffer in this life. There's nothing you will give up for the sake of Christ in this life that you will not be repaid for. Jesus taught that. Paul later would teach the early church that these light and momentary afflictions are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed to us one day. Persevere. God is real. He is true. His call is worth it. And give it your whole heart. There you'll find joy. There you'll find peace in believing. There you'll find hope and confidence and encouragement. And to those two ends, perseverance and wholeheartedness, Barnabas does something. He brings in a heavy hitter. Now he's still fairly young in the game, but he's been taught by the Lord Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord who has appeared to him and taught him. And he brings in Saul, which we more often refer to in the New Testament as Paul. And this dynamic duo of early Christian leadership comes together for the purpose of intentional discipleship. Because you can't miss that in this passage, right? Why do we focus so strongly? Why do we repeat so often? Why do we make it a, a mantra of sorts to be about discipleship? Because that's the means that God ordained for his people to persevere and be wholehearted. So he brings Saul in, and they begin to intentionally disciple um, the new believers there. Look what the scripture says. For a whole year they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And then there's this line. And here in Antioch, the believers, or the disciples, were first called Christians. They just coined this phrase. Now you might read in some commentaries that this was a derogatory term. I don't really think that's the case. I think it was just a term. It's like those are the people who are living that life of that person they follow called Jesus the Christ. These are the people who have taken on his teachings. These are the people who are trying to live life 
according to his will. These are the people that are like little Christ, the Christian nets, the small versions of Christ. You see, that's the fruit of real discipleship. The fruit of intentional discipleship is that people begin to look and live like Jesus. Otherwise, it's not discipleship. For all of you in some sort of discipling relationship right now, formal or informal, whether those are just conversations that you have, someone that you mentor or mentored by, or if you're one of, in one of our committed D groups, how do you know if it's, for lack of a better term, taking hold, working? Are the people in that group are you starting to live and look more like Jesus? Because that's the point. They begin to look like Jesus. You know, again, this is, this is an easy subject for us to tee off on, but if we, if we had something, if we didn't have church, if we didn't have this Sunday morning thing we do that identifies us to some degree, hey, you guys going to late day? No, I'm going to be at church. Hey, can you be at the game today? No, we'll be at church. No, those kind of identifiers, we say, oh, okay, I get it. You're one of those people, you go to church. Let's just take that one off the table for a moment. The people that you live with and work with, Besides what you do on Sunday mornings for a couple of hours, would they identify you as Christ followers? Because this is not a title they gave themselves. They didn't sit around, you know, in, in you know, one of those early church staff meetings saying, guys, we've got to figure out a better marketing strategy here. I don't, what do we call ourselves here, you know? People with the way, that's so, so, so cheesy. What way? That way? This way? What is that? You know, disciples? Everybody's got disciples. That guy's got disciples, and he's a nut. I mean, we need something, we need something better. We need something we can on shirts no no it was the world it was the community it was the people who saw what God was doing there and said those people what people those Christians there would the world identify us as Christian would it identify you Dan spoke to the end of this passage which is just one more evidence that what was happening for them was real it's not the only evidence it's not the only proof but it's added in there as almost like an epilogue, and that's why I titled that in your notes. Just like a little epilogue to show you that, no, what was happening here was real. Because now it had captured not just what they thought, not just what they felt in their hearts, not just what had drawn them or felt compelling to them. Now it had gotten down to the, to the nitty-gritty of their life, how they spent their money, and what they thought about other people. And so you had this added in, this sort of little historical addendum to the text. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Dan did a great job of summarizing that, so I won't repeat it. But you see the evidence of people whose lives have genuinely been captured by God. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? What should we be? And you see, it wasn't just this individualized, personalized version of the faith. It was collective. We are our people now. We are brothers and sisters. We are in it for one another. And so whatever that takes, we're going to do it. We're going to pitch in together, everyone, as they have ability to. And you can just imagine, some put in large amounts, some put in small they said, we're going to do this. We're going to bless one another, and we're going to do it together. And you see at every turn the hand of God. God building a people, not just a Jerusalem people, not just a Caesarean people, not just an Antiochian people, but soon there'll be an Ephesus people, and there'll be a Corinthian people, and there'll be a Thessalonian people, and all these things, but they're all one people, and they're showing evidence of transforming faith. 
God's got me. I belong to him now. And I'm going to live as God wants me to live. As you look at a text like this, I hope that you'll see two things. Look what God has done in this world. Be grateful that by many degrees separated out, you are the fruit, you are the result of what happened that day in Antioch. Because God granted to the Gentiles repentance and faith. You and I sit here today as part of his eternal family. We're the fruit of this. We're the fruit of God, the great evangelist. God breaking through opposition, culture, God penetrating different religion, different perspectives. God, the great evangelist. That's, that's me and you. Praise God for that. And know that God is still doing that. So when you give a gift towards an offering, when you give towards missions, when you go on a mission trip, when you're sharing the gospel, this is what God does. And this is the only way that people are saved. God at work. But also be confident on a personal level. I want to renew the hope of some of you in this room for a moment. For those of you who've maybe thought, um, I've done everything I know to do. I've tried everything I, I know to try. I've given every book I know to give. I've forwarded every sermon I know to forward. Persevere. Be patient. Trust God. It's not in vain. God's sovereignty is our encouragement. It's not our discouragement. It's what gives me hope when we walk across the neighborhood and we try to talk to somebody about Jesus. It's like Newton John Newton famously said, if he didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, he would just as well share the gospel with sheep and cows. But he knows that God is at work. And we trust that. You trust that in your life. God is at work. That's what happened in Antioch. This convergence. Persecution, God allowed. Obedience, God called. Faithfulness and boldness, hopefulness. Meanwhile, the hand of God. Listen, you and I, we... We can't manipulate the hand of God. I wish I could preach the message and say, here are five ways to make sure that we get the hand of God. God is sovereign. But we can pray for it. We can live in such a way to be worthy of it. God, use us. Use me. Because we know that the Bible teaches us that God doesn't use filthy vessels for holy purposes. We can expect it prayerfully. We, we can depend on it. We can patiently wait as we seek it. But let's pray and seek that God's hand would work through us as well. Whether that's in Kenya or India or Guatemala or Vermont or New York, or whether it's on your street, on your block, in your classroom. Let's pray to that end this, this morning. God, we are so grateful today that we get to call you Father. It's not just our emotional term for you. That is the one that you have invited us into and commanded us to. That's the defining one. You are our Father, and we thank you for that. We credit you for that. We credit you for Jesus. We credit you even for our faith. We credit you for the faithful, obedient ones who shared the good news with us. Father, now use us. Make us more hopeful than we've been, more courageous than we've been, more persistently patient or patiently persistent than we've been. God, may we not shrink back now. May we not shrink back now, not in this moment, not in the face of this darkness. May we not shrink back. 
Lord, I pray that we would be a people about your business. We get to be partners with you in, in the gospel. Your evangelism is what causes ours. We are your, we're your servants. We are co-laborers with Christ. You grant us the honor of telling the good news, the great story of Jesus the King and the kingdom that could be anyone's who believes. So Father, give us courage and boldness. Give us confidence and hopefulness. Give us patience and perseverance. And Lord, bless our work. Bless our efforts. The big ones in hard places. Local and personal. And Lord, may we trust that your word going out is going to do what your word is intended by you, purposed by your hand to do. And God, most of all, I pray that your hand would fall on us. Your hand would be at work among us. Your hand would be evident among us. We, too, want to see your hand of grace. Our families and our church and our city and beyond, we, we want to see that. May it be so for us as well. Listen, as you pray this morning, would you consider your own response? Just in prayerful response. Just there right now where you sit. First one, I guess, is rather personal. Besides going to church, do people know that you're a Christian? What a good day to purpose to live in such a way they can't miss that. To know that Christian, Christian guy works there. Christian family lives there. My teacher, she's a Christian. You purpose to be that? And maybe this morning, some of you are carrying that burden of uh, for the lostness of someone else. Ask God to renew your hope in Him. Not in yourself or methods, but in Him. And ask His Spirit to guide how you pray. But ask that He give you strength to continue to pray. But the gospel is a hopeful gospel anywhere for anyone. So don't give up. Father, move our hearts towards right response today. There's someone in this room who needs that response of faith, who needs to confess sin and say, God, I'm, I'm far from you. My sins have separated me from you. I need to be forgiven. Know that God's desire is to forgive you in Christ if you'll come to him humbly. Those who do, he shows much grace. He refuses the proud. He receives the humble. Just a moment, we're going to offer a time of response and invitation I'll stand here. A couple of our other pastors will stand here. We'd love to pray with you, encourage you. We'd love to talk to you about coming to faith in Christ today. If you'd like to just find a place to pray, what a good day to do it. Lift up the names before the throne again of those that we care about, that God has put on our hearts. Let's display our trust in him as we respond. Father, move us to right response. Even now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.